Christianity's influence on society is waning. American beliefs are becoming more and more post-Christian and atheism among young adults is double that of previous generations. We're losing our kids. As a church family, we look pretty dysfunctional. Dana Gresh posits the thought that the family of God has always leaned a little in that direction. Join her for a look at another dysfunctional family, the Israelites, in an effort to identify one thing we can do to save Christianity in our culture. This message was delivered at D6, a conference for parents, pastors, and leaders interested in family ministry. I don't know what you are leaving D6 with, but I am leaving with a challenge to be more intentional about ministry to my marriage. Is anybody else feeling that a little bit? You know, let's face it. Um, ministry does get in the way of tending to and nurturing our marriage. For me, it never really got in the way of my kids, but my husband, I give him the scraps. And I think if we're not careful, we can be real guilty of doing that. About one year ago, Bob and I got to a place where we were kind of in a critical crisis of just doing that. We minister to, uh, we travel with Secret Keeper Girl. We just started a new event for boys called Born to be Brave. And so one of us is kind of always on the road managing the team or speaking on the stage. We do a lot of teen events, and we have, just because we had extra time on our hands, a Christian high school that we started. Um, and so when you work with teenagers and when you work with any age group, you really are on call 24-7, right? You kind of got to leave town. So I told my friend, uh, Nancy Damas Wogelmuth, I said, we are just tanking. And she said, okay, come on out to Seek Week. We have a week every August where we just spend time in the Word and refresh as a ministry. You can spend half your week with us spending time with God and then half your week on the lake at Lake Michigan. And we were like, yes, big thumbs up. So we packed our bags, we get in the car, and you know, I'm just like, I'm gonna have a romantic week with my husband, time with God, all refreshed. And then we started talking. There was obviously some pent up pressure. We had a discussion and he listened to me as I poured my heart out in frustration and then he said, well, do I get some, some space on my soapbox? And I said, well, I guess. And you know what he told me? He said, I didn't speak his love language. And I said, well, what do you mean? Like we've been married like 28 years and you're just now mentioning this? Like what is your love language? Like he's like, it's football. And the thing is, I kind of loathe football. Like the sound of it just makes me, it sounds like a nice fall afternoon nap to me. And um, so, so it became a big thing in our marriage and a big eight hour conversation later, I had submitted to the Lord to figure out if maybe if I understood the game, I would like it. So I downloaded a copy of Football for Dummies. The first paragraph of the book told me, football is a competitive game played between two teams. They have to score the most points in one hour to win the game, 60 minutes. I'm not that dumb. <laughs> i tell you what though, I have started uh, scheduling my massages in football minutes. <laughs> Thank you. But I, I actually, understanding the game has made me enjoy it more, and we watch games together, we talk about them. I am not kidding that this has been a 
big problem and a big fix and a big work of God in our marriage. If you've heard Bob and I share our testimony anywhere, you know that there's a big win for us to be fighting about football and not much harder things because we've fought some big fights in our marriage. But I'll tell you what, our family puts the funk in dysfunctional. Anyone else out there? And tonight we're going to turn in the pages of the Bible to Exodus 33. We're going to look at a family who puts the funk in dysfunctional. It's a highly dysfunctional nation called Israel. Um, and a father named Moses who had to help them with their issues. And I uh, want to set this up for you before we read it tonight. Um, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, worshiping God, receiving from God, getting the Ten Commandments. Meanwhile, the kids are down in the valley having a frat party, right? with a golden cow as the centerpiece of their celebrations. And so Moses comes down from the, um, from the hill and he's kind of ticked off about everything that's happening. And there's three things as I look at the passages leading up to Gen Exodus 33, Exodus 33, there's three things that I see are the main dysfunctions of the nation of Israel. And the thing is when I looked at them to study for tonight, they seemed a little bit all too familiar they look like the church of the United States of America today. The first thing is this. The happiness of the people of Israel had worn off. They are painting pictures of Egypt that aren't even true anymore. They had forgotten just how bad it is. And as a result, they're hungering for something. They're hungering for something. Do you see the happiness of Americans dwindling? Do you see the happiness of the church dwindling? I do. In fact, a recent Gallup poll revealed that the World Happiness Index is at a 10-year low and that over half of Americans are stressed. Um, one of the things that really scares me is that children today between the ages of 7 and 18 score as high as on anxiety scales as those who were put in for inpatient treatment in 1957. And we're just telling them, go on, keep on, you're going to be okay. The happiness of the people had worn off. The second thing I say is that the people of Israel wanted to worship God, but on their own terms. They wanted it to be on their own terms. What I discovered as I was studying this is that they probably weren't actually worshiping that golden calf, because it says in Exodus 32, 5 and 6, that they were using it to bring sacrifice offerings and a present to a feast of the Lord. They were just saying, hey, we want to worship like everybody else worships. We want to be normal. We want to be like everyone else. And everyone else has something they get to see when they worship. We want to see something. And so Aaron indulged them and built them this cow. Do you see families today just wanting to fit in? Just wanting to be normal and willing to do just about anything to do it? And they want to worship God in the way that fits them, not the way that God has determined that they should worship. Uh, you know, one of the ex simple examples is just that how many people in your church have kids on traveling soccer teams and they can't come to church on Sunday because that comes first. Sports comes first. And I'm talking about eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds. But one of the ways that we really see it showing up is in the family structure. 
As we say, the family structure can be determined the way that we want it to look. The marriage rate is at the lowest that it's been in 150 years, and that's a global trend. Marriage across the globe is decreasing. Cohabitation is the new norm, not just for those who are unchurched, but those who are churched. And, 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 the, and the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings are saying that's just how we try marriage out. Shifting gender roles and gender confusion is really changing the way that we approach the family structure, and yet we're saying, well, we still want to worship God, we still want to go to church, we still want to call ourselves Christians, but we want to do this thing differently. We're trying to determine how we can worship God and get what we want and design things the way we want them to be. The third thing that I see is that the people of Israel were expressing their sexual desire and freedom. Many Bible scholars believe that the cow, the calf, the golden calf, was um, to emulate and reflect Baal who was a fertility god, he was worshiped for fertility, and he was worshiped through sexual ritual. He was worshiped through sexual ritual. Do you see that? Have we turned away from God's standards of integrity, sexual integrity and sexual theology and sexual purity to just impart and partake of sex the way that we want to take of sex? When I began my work ministering to families in the year 2000, one of the lines of hope that I really held on to was the fact that both sexual pleasure and sexual frequency was highest among married people. That's not true anymore. 20 years later, sexual pleasure and sexual frequency is more common among singles. Satan has reversed the order. But more than that, Sex is becoming less and less common. Sexual interest and sexual appetite is dwindling. The archives of sexual behavior suggest that the American sexual frequency has been falling steadily since the 1990s. 1990 was the year that we had our first search engine, and it was the year that pornography became something you didn't have to hide when you purchased or stuff under a pillow in a closet but you could just look at it on your computer. And I think, um, you know, as we, as we look at, at, at pornography increasing, sexual desire is decreasing. And one of the most powerful visual pictures I've ever had is, you know, what picture was I gonna show you of, uh, you know, pornography, okay? So I picked a gypsy moth. Um, <laughs> there's a reason. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember or lived in a region of the country where in the 70s and 80s, the gypsy moths were just eating up our trees. Does anybody remember that? So we couldn't figure out how to fix it. We dropped pesticide. Um, we sprayed things. We did everything we could. Nothing was slowing down the destruction of the gypsy moth. Now, gypsy moths breed um, by smelling the males smell the pheromones of this female, the strongest smelling female, the sweetest smelling female attracts the guys. And so researchers said, well, let's stop dropping poison and instead let's develop synthetic pheromones and let's drop the most powerful scent a male will ever smell into the trees. And so the gypsy moths began fervently looking for the scent of that sweet smelling female and essentially stopped breeding with the living females that were in the very tree they were in. 
And I think that is a powerful word picture of exactly what's happening to us in the church. And I, I wish I could say that all these different statistics about the depression and the anxiety and the unhappiness, the sexual misuse was different in the church than outside of the church, but it's not. For example, um, just a few years ago, Fifty Shades of Grey was released as a book and then as a movie, um, and there was no statistical difference in the percentage of Christian versus non-Christian women who proudly read the book and defended the book. And I might also add, the irony of that is that as women were becoming proud of reading this book, which not only is pornographic and erotic, but also it glamorizes violent sex against women. At the same time, hashtag me too was debuting and, and I'm like, how is this possible that women are hashtag me tooing all over the place and rightly so in many cases and then lining up to see this movie that disrespects women. I don't understand it. We are a dysfunctional family. We are a dysfunctional nation and we are a dysfunctional church family. So Moses, finds this unhappy, sexually driven, we want God, but we want to approach him our way family, having a frat party in the valley, and he shows up and he's mad. And so he does what any dad would do when he comes home from a business trip and finds a party in his house. He melts down the cow, he pounds it into dust, he pours it into their drink, and he makes them drink it. Can you say anger management issues? <laughs> Moses had a few. We see them all through the book of Exodus. This is a dysfunctional family. And this, my friends, is the prayer of Moses, the father of Israel, for his highly dysfunctional family. I want to read to you Exodus 33, 12 to 18. Before I do, I want to point out the, the only, uh, the, uh, Moses is not the only one that's angry. God is also angry and he pronounces that he is not going to further travel with the people. I will not go with you anymore. You are hard-hearted and stubborn, stiff-necked, you're on your own. You don't want me, I'm gonna be a gentleman. And this is the prayer of Moses for his people. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and have found, you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses, the great questioner, has God changed his heart has God changed his behavior? Has God, now does God change? No, when he said I won't go with you, he was acting out of the character of his justice. And when he changes this circumstance and says I will go with you, he was acting out of his mercy because one of his children asked. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, it's like, did you hear me Moses? Like he's like, well, if your presence will not go with me, he can't even believe it. Do not bring us up from here. For how long shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. As I was praying for you um, these last few weeks and asking the Lord, 
What did I want to talk to you about? Um, I am very much with my friend Nancy Damas Wogelmuth about revealing truth and debunking lies. Nancy wrote Lies Women Believe. It has sold over a million books. And together with her, I wrote Lies Young Women Believe. And we just released Lies Men Believe this month. And in February, we will release Lies Girls Believe and a Mom's Guide to Lies Girls Believe. Because I believe we are in a culture where truth is being slaughtered. And that if we don't embrace that and receive that, we are gonna remain as depressed and as anxious and as stressed and as sexually dissatisfied and as sexually dysfunctional and as familial dysfunctional as the rest of the world. We have to begin to live in truth. And so I wanted to bring a message to you about what are the main lies that families are believing in the United States today in the church. And God had me settle on just two simple ones. There are so many, but I wanna reveal these two that we can see in this passage of scripture, and we can also see how we might possibly respond to them. The number one is this. Lie number one, we need to be normal. The Israelites wanted to be like everyone else. That's why they wanted the calf. That's why they wanted something to see. They wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted idols, plural, to worship. Are we that different? I think we watch the same television shows. We listen to the same music. We, we, um, we're, we're, our sexual practices are the same. We dress the same, we look the same, we talk the same. Our language is, is it doesn't sound different. And I, I'm so, I've been so burdened for this for so many years that one of the themes of our Secret Keeper Girl Tour, the Crazy Hair Tour, is um, we just try to teach girls that normal is very overrated. Why do you want to be like everyone else? And here's the problem. As long as we are like everyone else, as long as we are as depressed and as anxious and as stressed, why would the world want what we have? Why would they want that? They, the truth is this. God wants us to stick out. He wants us to look, yeah. I was at the last crusade that Billy Graham ever spoke at. I grew up with my mom watching him and listening to him while she was ironing. She was always ironing when there was a Billy Graham crusade on. And so when it was announced that he would be personally in Flushing Meadows and that it might be his last crusade, I turned to her three days before. I said, you wanna go? And we went. And I remember the moment that I realized that we were freaks. We Jesus people are just, mm-hmm. Because Billy Graham pointed to a, a, a cemetery that wasn't far from the outdoor park that we were at, and he said, we believe you have to be all in if you wanna be a Christian. Before you walk down that altar and commit that you wanna follow Christ, be all in, because we believe that one day those graves will open and the dead in Christ will rise. And I thought to myself, we truly are nuts. And yet, we really aren't all in. 
We want to be normal, we want to fit in, but we don't want to be all in. And God says, I want you to be distinct. In fact, Moses says that here in verse 16. He says, is it not you're going with us so that we are distinct? Moses knew in his heart that what was distinct about Israel first and foremost was God being with them and he knew that they were supposed to look distinct, act distinct, sound distinct. And that's still the message of us today, the book of Philippians tells us that we should be so different that we shine like stars on a dark night. Do we? Or have we just kind of started to blend in? I'm afraid that the answer is that we have started to blend in. My friends, normal is overrated, and God wants us to be distinctly different. He wants us to look like more. He wants us to have the joy of the Lord. He wants us to have the fruit of the Spirit. And if that's not flowing through us, maybe something is wrong. You know, um, as I sit with the millennials that uh, we heard about last night from Lee Strobel who are leaving the church in mass exodus, the number of millennials who are atheists, claim to be atheists, is two times higher than the rest of the entire adult population. And that's going to continue to grow. And when I sit with them and I talk with them, they have really good questions about the church, but the number one question they ask that's just so good is they're like, I, I've sat in the church, I've been through the discipleship programs, I went to Christian college, I did all the things, my parents are great, the church was great, the Christian college was great. Isn't there something more? There's gotta be something more. Because they want something different. They don't, teenagers don't wanna just show up to a pizza party. We have a youth group for our Christian high school where every week there's no pizza in sight, but we open the word of God. There's no programming, really not a lot of programming, but there's some great disciples who open this book with a bunch of hungry for God teenagers and they study it and it's not very sexy but they love it and they're growing and they're being discipled and it's simple. Because as you heard Ron Hunter say, what is distinct about a healthy church is that they're a discipling church. We are discipling those kids every Wednesday and they're different, it's a different kind of youth group. The second lie that I see here is that God's, um, God's we can go without God. So God says, I'm not gonna go with you. And do you know, it tells us in Exodus 32 that the people got really sad. They were like, that is a bummer. And that's all they did. And you know what, I think that's us. I think you and I, I think that church leaders recognize that God, he, he, he's a little bit missing. Let's be honest. We feel it sometimes, shouldn't there be more? What about the, the second chapter of Acts? And what about the, the Holy Spirit? And what about the healing? And what about the power? And what about there will be a river of living water flowing through you? What about that? Where is it? Is anybody, is it just me? And so like two million people hear that God's not gonna go with them and they're like, bummer. And one man, one man, has the guts to say to God, hey, if you're not going, I'm not going. When they were building that idol, they said, we don't need you, God. They were saying, we're gonna go our own way, and God said, yeah, I'm not gonna go then. 
And only one man said, no, will you go? Now, Moses was a great questioner. As you heard last night from Lee Strobel, it's good to ask questions, and it's good to create a culture where you can ask questions. And Moses is constantly asking questions from the point of the burning bush. Well, how are they going to know? Well, what if they don't follow? Well, what if I can't speak? And we see all through Exodus, I call Moses the great questioner. We are actually having a theme at our Christian high school this year called Question Marks. And we are trying to create that space where these teenagers can ask the hard questions and express their doubts. And Moses did that, and he modeled that. So we've been studying the, the, the book of Exodus and the life of Moses, and he asked so many questions, but I want to show you the most audacious question that he ever asked, and it's right here in um, 33. So first of all, he says, God, will you go with me? And God says, okay, I'll go with you. And he's like, but if you won't go with me, and so he's like pressing him, like that's the character of Moses, always like up in God's grill. And then God says to him in, in, in um, verse 17, this very thing that I've spoken for you, I will do, for I have found favor in you. In the message version, it, it says, God says, I'm going to do it, and you can ask me anything. And Moses hears, I'll do anything you ask. And when I read that recently, I felt like, oh, this is like a whole princess bride thing. You know, like the poor peasant boy who every time that sweet, beautiful blonde asked him for something, he said, as you wish. This is God saying, as you wish. And what, 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 that, what that farmer boy was really saying every time he said it was, I love you. I love you. And this is God telling Moses, I love you. And so here's the thing that I saw. All right, so Moses is winning this conversation, right? God was ticked. The whole idol thing had him a little nonplussed, but he was acting in his justice. And then God gets reminded that, hey, they're not going to look so distinct without you. And God's like, well, I want them to look distinct. I don't want them to fit, and I don't want them to be normal, so I'll stay with you. I'll act in my mercy. I'll act in my goodness. And then he's like, I'm going to say, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you, Moses. Ask me anything you want. Now, if that were you right now today, with all the dysfunction happening in your family and your church, what would you ask God for? You know what, I, I would, it has not been a good 60 days at our ministry. Started out on July 6th at a goodbye party for one of our ministry team who was moving to work in a ministry in Arizona. Had 150 people at my house. 24 hours later, we all had salmonella. That was fun. We lost over 300 man, man hours at our one ministry and about 800 at the other ministry. So we had to slash projects and cut projects and delay projects. So our morale has gone down. And then there were some financial ramifications with that. And then um, my husband and I still haven't recovered. We're like in constant, like trying to figure out what's wrong with our bodies and many other people. And I'm just discouraged. And I think I might ask God, Lord, heal me. Lord, heal my husband. Lord, fix the financial problem. Lord, bring us the, the, the almost thousand man hours that we've lost. There's a whole list of genie in a bottle questions I would ask God if he showed up and said, as you wish, Anna. And Moses, I can only imagine. Like, I thought, what kind of questions would I ask if I were Moses? I think I might have said, God, make me younger because I am getting older by the minute with all these things. I might have said, God, could you please could you just say one time, don't make me come down there to those kids. Could you do that instead of me? And, and I, I thought maybe he might say, beam me up to the promised land, right? 
Like this whole walking in circles thing's getting on my nerves. But no, Moses does not treat God like a genie in the bottle. He can ask God for anything, and he asks for the one thing he cannot live without. Give me more of you. Show me your glory. Show me more of you. God, I want you. I need you. I can't go another step without you. The truth is that you and I cannot do anything on our to-do list, anything on our ministry vision plan, anything in our strategic plan. We cannot even pray with our families unless we first say, God, go with us. And I fear that we are getting so busy that we're not doing that. I remember at the beginning of my ministry, I was just, it was just me. It was just little old Dana waiting by the phone for somebody to call and say, hey, you want to come talk at my church? And I would get a book order, and I would put the book in a box, and I would pray in the name of Jesus over that girl who was going to read that book. And I can remember getting 50 people that would come to my conference, and I would pray for those girls by name, and I would ask the Lord to show up and, and show off in their lives. And, and there was me sitting in the presence of God every day for an hour a day saying, show me your glory, show me your glory, show me your glory. But I've been, become much too important for that. And some of you have too. I am so busy for the Lord, I don't have time to be with him. And five weeks ago, my husband delivered a message on John 15, 5. If you abide in me, I will abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And you know what? I've been getting a lot of nothing done. Stressing myself out, getting depressed, getting anxious. So I started to abide five weeks ago. And the main thing the Lord said to me is, hey, stop being with the people you're ministering to. Start talking to me about them. I'm going to take care of it if you just talk to me about them. I read this quote by a famous dead guy that's awesome that I want to share with you. <laughs> They're my favorite. Talking to men about God is good, but talking to God about men is great. What if you stopped talking to God? men about God in our churches on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings and all the times before you first talked to God about them. What would happen? I'll tell you what's happened in my life. Um, they're coming out of the woodwork. Kids that we have talked about, wow, they walked away from the Lord. How do we bring them back? They're calling us. I'm meeting with one of them on Sunday afternoon on my farm at 10 a.m., uh, that's the morning. Um, and, and I've been praying for her for five years. Well, no, I haven't actually been praying for her. I've been complaining about her. Started praying about her, and she showed up. God is doing amazing things. 75 people came to know Christ in Dallas this past weekend at a Secret Keeper Girl event. And Monday morning, I woke up with a heart to pray for them. And I fell to my knees beside my bed. And I said, Lord, help them to know about baptism. Lord, send them someone to teach them how to study their Bible. And I meant it. For an hour, I prayed for these girls. And it poured out of me. Listen to me, my friends. You don't need curriculum, although I hope you buy them because I write them. Uh, you, 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 you don't need a new mission statement. You don't. You don't need all the things unless you first have the presence. And so I beg with you and I plead with you. Ask the question Moses did. No matter what your needs are, Lord, can we have more? This message was presented at D6. If you enjoyed it, you'll love the ministry Dana has developed to put moms in the driver's seat of their children's faith formation. 
Her True Girl events have been attended by well over 400,000 and bring moms and daughters closer to each other and closer to Jesus. Learn more at mytruegirl.com or danagresh.com. This podcast was produced by Pure Freedom Ministries.